We invite you to stand for the reading of the word. Would you today? Matthew chapter 2. We've been in one story all month long. Matthew chapter 2. Today we begin reading with verse 7. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time that the star had first appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you found him, report to me, so that I too may go and honor him. When they had heard this from the king, they went. They looked. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and they saw the child with Mary the mother. Falling to their knees, they honored him. Then they opened their treasure chests and they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Because they were Because they were warned in a dream not to return back to Herod, they went home to their own country by another route. This is the word of God. You can be seated. We know one story. We simply tell it in thousands upon thousands of ways. We know one story. The year is 1924, and it's Nome, Alaska, and winter has set in two degrees south of the Arctic Circle. In these sub-Arctic communities, there is literally no transportation that happens. This happens to be a particularly severe winter. It's 50 degrees below in Fairbanks. Can our little Riverside, California ears hear this story? (laughs) We've been watching you bundled up with every sweater and scarf you own and bringing your Uggs out of the closet for this one or two days a year. We've been watching. Well, we're going to go cold today. 50 degrees below in Fairbanks. Now, Nome is a long ways from Fairbanks. Happens to be one of the largest, it is the largest city in this remote part of Alaska. A couple thousand people, the city swelled during the gold rush era a few years earlier. This particular winter, however, um, well, they started getting some sore throats. The, The doctor in town, one doctor, four nurses, a 25 bed hospital, that's what they've got to serve their community and the surrounding communities. A child has a sore throat, and another child has a sore throat, and another child has a sore throat, and the doctor thinks it might be tonsillitis. But then the worst happens, one child dies. The doctor had already put in an order for the medicine before the ports closed, before everything froze over for the winter. The medicine hadn't arrived. What he had was some expired antitoxin, for diphtheria, and he thought, well, I'll try it when he gets to the next child who becomes sick. Let me give this little girl this expired medicine and see, and she died a few hours later. And then a seven-year-old child, and this is when the doctor knew we have a problem. So they gathered the city leaders They put everybody in a room, the mayor and all of the players showed up to try and imagine what are our solutions. This is an era way 
before airplanes regularly flew into these remote regions. They've got three disassembled J-planes. Nobody believes if they assemble them, they could actually make the flight and that the serum would last or the pilot in the cold temperatures, right? The ports are closed, frozen over, no ships are coming through. This is way before um, snowmobiles, right? Snowmobiles are in the 1960s. It's actually the snowmobiles that put the sled dogs out of business. And it's actually that that was the birth of the Iditarod to bring back the whole culture of sled dogs, sled dogs across the Alaskan frontier as the main form of communication. So they send a telegraph. The city mayor sends a telegraph to Washington, D.C., to the public health officials. The telegraph says this, an epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I'm in urgent need of one million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. Mail is the only form of transportation. Stop. And I have made a request. Application to the Commissioner of Health of the Territories for antitoxin already and it didn't, hadn't arrived. Stop. There are about 3,000 white natives in the district. And you can read between the fine line there about the indigenous people. They have history with this because just a few years earlier, an influenza pandemic came through and wiped out 50% of the native population. They say they think 10,000 people died just a few years earlier. So the prediction is that 100% of the population would die should no serum arrive to this remote part of Alaska. And remember, the natives, the indigenous people, those who live this land, multiple tribes and cultures and languages and experiences, they don't have a resistance built up yet to these diseases. So the problem solvers go to work. All of you uh, type A personalities or you SJs or I don't know if you're doing the Enneagram thing, are you the challengers? They got them all in the room. Not only in Nome, but all across the lower parts of the states as well. What can we do? What can we do? They secure one million units of the serum that will be needed from the West Coast hospitals, and it's all shipped up to Seattle, and that's brilliant. Now, how do we get it from Seattle up to the, past that interior region into Nome? They disagree on what the solutions will be. In fact, the editor of the Little City newspaper disagrees so much, he protests the rest of the story. They decide that it will be dog sleds and mushers. That is the only way they can cross this Alaskan interior portion, even through this severe winter. The problem, of course, is that the trip is at least 20 days long. One person has done it in a nine-day record time, but how many people will die by then? And will the serum even remain uh, usable and active in those frigid temperatures up to 70 degrees below? in that part of the frontier. This is, again, before bush pilots and all these other options. It's also the polar night season. That means we've got four hours of daylight. Four hours of daylight to work through, through the canyons and the crevices and the frozen little sounds and the wind chill factor. And they decide to go for this, to travel across the interior this way. The sled dogs and the mushers. It's 1924. There are plenty of sled dogs and mushers, and they call upon them. Here's the map of where they need to go. 
From the, left, uh, from the right hand of the screen to Fairbanks, all the way over to the left to Nome, that upper region is where they need to travel. The medicine uh, in Seattle also needs to somehow get up there. So they select a lead musher, a Norwegian, Leonard Seppala. They get 20 mushers together, 150 dogs, and by relay they begin the tale of getting the serum all the way out to Nome. It is little episode after little episode of cracking, freezing, shifting, breaking, slipping, falling, too scary to see the scenes kind of story. It's episode after episode of pouring boiling, boiling water on Sledder's hands frozen to the sled to try and release them so the next Sledder can take off. It's episode after episode. I mean, how much can we layer on this? The coldest winter in 20 years history only four hours of daylight. We have to cross, go across the interior of Alaska like this. And a virus is on the loose. The radio and the news stories quickly picked this up. Word began to spread in the lower 48 states. Everyone is paying attention, episode day by day by day. Where are the mushers? Where are the dogs? How is the story unpacking? And it turns out that finally, 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 one sled dog, Balto, and his musher, the lead gunner, they indeed make that last leg to Nome and they pass off the serum. And that Balto becomes the most famous canine since World War I and Rin Tin Tin. And there's a press tour, and there are hero stories, and there are posters, and there are books, and there's a statue in Central Park, and on and on and on it goes of the great tale. It's also called the Serum Run of 1925, or the Great Race of Mercy. Our daughters read the story simply as Balto. Maybe you did too. We spent a good amount of time in October trying to find that book in our attic, in our boxes, in our bookcases. We know we had it. There was eventually a second relay in February. It was a U.S. minesweeper, a minesweeper that left Seattle and made its way around to Nome and delivered the next package of antitoxin serum they needed to keep these people alive. I don't know, dog sleds or a minesweeper? This is the Great Mercy Run of 1925. Now here's what happens to the story when Disney Studios gets a hold of it, 100 years later or so. Intelligence, stamina, courage, and heart. His dogs. He's undersized. He's trouble. Well, good afternoon. He's untrainable. Stop that! Ah! What does he bring to the breed? The heart of a survivor. Ran every single one of them. He's not a sled dog. He's a lead dog. 
What we have in our children is an epidemic. It's a death sentence. They found a cure. Round trip is 600 miles. You see that storm on the horizon? Only one man and one dog can make that run. He's 12 years old. He's too old. He'll never make that distance. Got one more in your pump. And I can't show you the rest of the trailer. It's too much. In fact, the New York Times critic said this week, man, what a disappointment that this is only being shown on Disney Plus streaming, not in the large screens, because the string section alone, the soundtrack on this film, besides the scenery. This is what happened when Walt Disney Studios gets a hold of the story, because it turns out Balto was only one of the dogs among the group of 150. There's another little one who no one had too much hope for. This little one, Togo, he was an underweight, scattered, defiant, disobedient, kind of trouble-making little mud of a dog. Broke loose, escaped, they didn't really think he would become much, they gave him away as a pet, he broke loose, came back home to his lead musher. Okay, let's see if he's got anything in him. It turns out this little guy, he likes to be in a pack. It also turns out that while Balto and Gunner were the last to do the final leg of that race, it, Togo and Seppala from Norway did more miles and the treacherous part of the journey. In fact, if it hadn't have been for this little guy, there probably wouldn't have been any serum passing off in this story. This is Togo. And this is the part of the story the storytellers at Disney Studios are working to recover to share with us during this holiday season. It's a story our family has paid attention to. Let me tell you why. Last summer, a phone call, text message came from our oldest daughter. I've talked about our children before who seem to have a heart to rescue anything with a heartbeat, right? And we don't know where these kids came from. No, it's going to die. It's the cycle of life. Let it go. We'll bury it, right? But for whatever reason, we're rescuing everything in our house since they were tiny. A text message comes from our oldest daughter, Amanda, a graduate from the business school, happens to be an accountant who works for the Disney Studios, who happens to be in Calgary when they are shooting this film. She has been surrounded by little Siberian husky and Malmute pups for two weeks. And the film is about to close, so the messages come out to the family. Does anybody want a husky? Don't you want a husky? They're so cute. This is when the whole world had gone husky crazy because of that little HBO series, right? Game of Thrones. No, I don't want a husky. No, my husband doesn't want a husky. Sister, don't you want a husky? Sister started inquiring. The Disney people started talking back. And then a formal paperwork came in the email. We have to interview you and screen you to see if you are a fit home to adopt our Huskies. The questions were something like, what makes you a suitable home to take a Siberian Husky? What experience have you had with this breed? How much have you researched this breed? Extensively, a little bit, not at all. Tell us a little bit about your daily life and your rituals and where you live. Send us pictures of your home. Tell us about experience you've had with prior pets. Do you have any pets in your home? What are their temperaments like? I mean, this is full-on adoption screening, friends. And before 
The dog could come, there had to be a site visit. Like this dog social worker showed up. The dog social workers are in downtown Seattle. My child lives in about a 500 square foot apartment. There is no hope a Siberian Husky is coming to live in a 500 square foot apartment in downtown Seattle, except for the Disney people seem to like her answers. They came and said, hmm, you seem nice enough. Here's your dog. And this is her little dog, Echo, from last summer. We've been waiting to talk about this because just like the adoption people in the courts, you sign a release and a statement and you can't speak publicly about anything until it's all out in the open. Well, it's all out in the open because December 20, this film was released. This is Echo, the Siberian Husky at about five months old. Can you imagine he's come from Calgary, Canada with a bunch of pups who are packing and tribing and playing and they're in the snow and he, now he comes to Seattle in the end of the summer. This is Echo, moving into his apartment. David, show us the next. Echo has a playmate who lives in the apartment. This is Zelda, um, a German Shepherd breed who's a lovely dog until Echo ruined her life. Do we play, do we play, do we play? Where's the snow? What do we do next? When are we going outside? Like, is this the whole room? <laughs> oh, this is it. This is where I'm going to live now? Huh. All right. Let's figure it out. Yeah. This is uh, Echo, the Siberian Husky who's been living outside, moving into a 500 square foot apartment in downtown Seattle. This is what Echo does in his pastime. Most of the gifts we get now have teeth marks in them with an apology card from Echo. There's, this is what Echo does while the masters are away at Amazon all day. Who, me? What, what? Keep going, David. Yep, this is, even with the cone of shame on his head, he knows how to make an apartment look like this. Because it turns out he actually doesn't want to be alone because he's a pack dog. So he walks three miles round trip to work every day, but it's not quite enough. And they go to the dog park and we go off leash, but it's still not quite enough. And he's still trying to figure out because he wasn't raised around any human beings, only a bunch of little puppies in the snow. Turns out when this movie was released on December 20, was that just yesterday? At 1 a.m., my Seattle daughter and I think my Disney daughter were wide awake streaming. There was no guarantee Echo was actually in this movie. So they were glued to the front of the screen, and this is what they found. Actually, Echo watched the film alongside. There he is, premiere day. Am I going to be in this film? And it turns out, next shot, see that little one in the back? That's Echo. See, the big one in the front, that's Balto, the star of the story, right? Oh no, Togo, the star of the story. One more. The, front, the dog in the front here is this little Echo. She can identify him because he's got one tiny little white dot on the black interior rim of his ear. Not knowing for sure at all if we'd see him in the film, there he is, just as plain as can be. 
Echo, the Siberian Husky who lives in 500 square feet in downtown Seattle, who has an agent now. So I'll tell you what our family's gonna be doing on Christmas Day. We're gonna be logged into Disney Plus, the rest of us haven't watched it. And we're gonna be sitting down watching 120 minutes of footage go by, waiting for our little pup to cross the screen and we're all gonna cheer him on and we're gonna get the Kleenex because I hear even the Disney, Disney execs needed Kleenex. We're gonna get lots of Kleenex and we're gonna sit down and consume the story of Balto, of Togo, of Echo, Actually, every story we've ever known. We know one story. We tell it in thousands and thousands of ways. Yes, it's, it's this story. And yes, it's Mandalorian. And yes, it's Star Wars. We see you this weekend, you people. And yes, it's every Marvel comic, and it's Harry Potter, and it's every legend and tale from Asia to South America, from the Antarctic to the South Pacific. It turns out that we are fragile and ferocious, ferocious and fierce human beings living in a broken world. Every story is this one story. The Gospel of Matthew says, Herod was the trouble. Last week, Pastor Bev asked us, why do we allow Herod to have all the anxiety and, and bequeath it to us? Why do we let him make us anxious too? The storyteller says, they're all unraveled. They've all come undone. Everyone's out of control in Herod's story. And the worst part hasn't even come yet. Still ahead is to slaughter the babies. Everyone in the story is unraveled. We know, our souls know one story. We simply tell it in thousands and thousands of ways, church. This is one of the toughest lessons for me this Advent. I'm learning that I am not enough. Now please hear me, those of us working on the negative tapes in our head where we've been told we're not enough, we're not good enough, we're such a disappointment, we're always letting someone down, this is not that. And keep working on those negative tapes. This is something other and something more. I am not enough for the broken world we can see. You are not enough either. We are fragile humans. And we seem to have this soft spot for telling these rugged tales where, where buff characters pre present the better versions of themselves and a hero emerges. One of the books that's had my attention during Advent this year is called The World Is Not Ours to Save. The author, Tyler Wig Stevenson, it turns out he was, a, at most of his early years, he was an advocate against nuclear weapons, an activist, formed at least two or three NGOs, nonprofits, working on nuclear weapons and peace, went to seminary, became a pastor. He says in this book this idea, we humans rarely seem to dream up a different kind of world where there are no problems. Instead, we dream up a different kind of me who is up to the challenge. Advent teaches me that I am not resourceful enough or educated enough or 
wise enough or compassionate enough. I am not well-connected enough. I am not wealthy enough. I can't get my 10 most talented friends in the room and solve the crisis of creation. We are not the heroes of this story. It doesn't mean that rolling up our sleeves and being helpers in this fragile world is not important. We can and we ought to, and I do believe Jesus asks that of us. There comes a moment in this story when Mary and Joseph and the Magi kneel before Jesus, and the text says they are filled with joy. That word joy they saw the star, they were filled with joy, they entered the house, they saw the child falling to their knees, they honored him. It's a word used a couple of times in the passage. The word can mean many things, but it can mean particularly they are glad, they are thriving, or to be well, church. When they see the star, their soul is well. When they see the star, there's a moment of, of of imagining a thriving, whole, complete life. A solution is arriving when they see the star. We are not the alternative to the dark world, you and me. We are helpers, but we're not the alternative. I cannot liberate the loss that has happened. I cannot make up for the horror in the particular stories that we've all experienced. You cannot make up for the horror that might come in the next days or months or years. Whatever horror is still to happen will truly happen. The world's brokenness, it's not way out there, it's actually right up close here in our families and in our homes and in our church and in our, in our community and we can touch it, it's near to us. So hear me today, broken, or anxious, or wounded, or angry, or apathetic, or bored souls. Hear me today. The star announces that the brightest solution is out of my reach and yours, because the resolving work belongs to God. The story of Jesus, it's the only story we know. We simply tell it in thousands and thousands of ways. Help is arriving. Amen.